Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Having a great day, man. It's uh, beautiful and sunny once again in San Francisco, and we just finished interviewing Andreas Antonopoulos. So, I mean, what's better than that? Yeah, so every, every podcast gets their turn with Andres, and this was ours. Uh, me and Christian, when we first started POV Crypto, we knew who we wanted to get uh, in the long term. And of course, Andreas was on that list. So, uh, and, and we, of course, talked to him about the subject matter, as you would expect him to, uh, the Bitcoin versus Ethereum side of things. And Andreas is the most uh, politically correct person in crypto. So uh, he, he really treads that line carefully, but also gives each ecosystem credit where credit is due. So I think it was a pretty fair uh, representation from from him and then we just go into the greater uh, greater implications of crypto at large so really awesome conversation everyone loves Andreas and every conversation with Andreas is new and unique and so that's what we got here today yeah but before we get into the interview let's talk about our sponsors first up Unchained Capital you guys know it Unchained is one of my favorite companies in the space it is a Bitcoin native financial organization Everything is built on top of Bitcoin multi-sig. Their first product is the Vault. I use this daily. Uh, this is like your Bitcoin savings account, except that it can't be co-opted. There's no third party. Unchained has one key. It's a two of three multi-sig Vault, and you have two keys. So you can have complete control, or you can use their banking-like services as uh, by letting them use or sign with their key in the quorum every time you transact. Um, and I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how much I enjoy using this. It's something that you can recommend to your older parents about how to have that nice, you know, UI where they can easily understand what's happening with their Bitcoin, where to deposit their Bitcoin, but they know that everything is on their hardware wallet in their safe or wherever, however you help them set it up. So Unchained Capitals Vault is fantastic. And then on the other side, they have their loans. Friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. Instead, use your Bitcoin as collateral. Put it down in, again, a multi-sig vault. Have Unchained Capital loan you out some USD. It's better for taxes. It's better for everything. You don't sell your Bitcoin. You have a key to your Bitcoin at all times. Uh, check out Unchained Capital at Unchained Cap on Twitter. Check them out uh, on their website, unchained-capital.com. Email them, hello at unchained-capital.com. Number two, let's talk about eToro. These guys have been amazing long-term sponsors. They've been our sponsor for almost six months now. So thank you so much to eToro for making POV crypto possible. eToro is one of the best trading platforms on the market. And for a limited time only, if you check out eToro, you can get a ticket to Bitcoin 2020 conference. But why should you check out eToro? Well, eToro, first and foremost, is a place to get great rates on just buying Bitcoin and pulling it off the exchange or just buying Ether and pulling it off the exchange. But if you're trying to experiment and do something a little bit more crazy, they have indexing, they have a bunch of other cryptocurrencies, they have the ability to copy a trader. So that way you can just put money on a trader and be exposed to their, uh, to their trading strategy without ever having to um, lift a dime, check out a chart, draw a line or anything like that. So eToro is a one-stop shop for however you want to invest in crypto. Make sure to check out eToro by going to bitcoin2020conference.com backslash eToro, signing up there, buying $100 of Bitcoin or whatever crypto you prefer, and then eToro will give you a ticket to the best Bitcoin event of the year, Bitcoin 2020, next month in March. I'll be there. David will be there. Make sure eToro can get you there as well. All right, that is enough of me. Let's get right into it. I'm super proud to bring you guys Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas Antonopoulos, welcome to POV Crypto. Such an honor to have you on. Thank you for your time. It's so my pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Andreas, both me and Christian are just huge fans of your work. And you, you th we think you're a really particularly good guest to come on to POV Crypto, specifically because everyone, everyone trusts you, everyone uh, listens to what you have to say, and you seem to uh, really have an unbiased and impartial view as to the role of cryptocurrencies and how they impact the world at large. So uh, I, we're really looking forward to this, uh, to this conversation and kind of where you position yourself uh, with this Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus everything else world. It's very it's, tribal world. It's that, a pleasure to be on the show and uh, I can helpfully summarize um, where I position myself uh, is ju just replace the, uh, the VS uh, with an and, um, mm. and we're mm -hmm. there. Um, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Is, is where I position myself, and I'd be very happy to be um, someone who works across both spaces. I won't lie, but Bitcoin uh, is by far the focus of my um, activity and effort because it was first, because it's my big love, because um, it's the area I have the deepest knowledge. But it's not at the exclusion of anything else. And I actually see a lot of value in the union, in the join, in the and. Um, so yeah, both. Andreas, thanks again. This is Christian and really, uh, really excited to have you on to kind of explain this more and philosophy. I definitely come from a more Bitcoin -er, uh perspective and spend a lot of time with people that would consider themselves Bitcoin maximalists. And I've actually kind of been pushing this idea of this is the Bitcoin ecosystem and all of these other things are part of Bitcoin. Uh, so I'd be interested to see on how you feel about that idea in general. Um, but I, you know, before all of that, I just want to say that uh, having you on this podcast, I feel like is a, is a measure of success for us. Uh, we've been working hard for the past two years uh, doing this podcast. And I think you are one of the five people that we checked off as dream guests. So this is really a dream come true and super excited. Well, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Let's just get started. Uh, I mean, in general, uh, this is the Bitcoin versus Ethereum podcast. Um, there have been a ton of infighting, uh, both good and bad faith, you know, between these two communities. Um, like, what do you see the role of Bitcoin and Ethereum and any other cryptos, you know, working together in, in this union, as you kind of illustrated in your intro? Well, as I've... Um said many times in the past, I think that in the uh, evolution of any cryptocurrency, crypto system, or blockchain, there are certain decisions that need to be made. And some of these decisions are, represent fundamental trade-offs, meaning that in order to get um, more of A, you have to get less of B. Um, there, there are some design decisions that do represent fundamental, not all design decisions, but some design decisions do represent fundamental trade-offs, meaning you can't have both. You simply can't. And so when you choose to go down one road, you're sacrificing a potential other avenue, leaving it unexplored. In that way, if you go through the evolution, the parallel evolution of two cryptocurrencies, even if they start at the same origin, um, and, and in many ways, all of them have the same origin, um, either directly through code or philosophically. Um, eventually, they will diverge. And they'll diverge by necessity because they will make choices to optimize one direction instead of another. And maybe another system optimizes the other way, the opposite way, makes that choice in the opposite way. And... In retrospect, and for certain applications, you might say path A was better um, than path B. And in some, in some of these choices, it, it really is a qualitative distinction. Path A is fundamentally better in every way, and path B was simply a mistake. I don't think there are too many of those. On the other hand, there are choices like that where path A is better for some applications, and path B is better for other applications. I think there are lots of those. And so, therefore, um, I think a lot of the argument 
that comes down to A versus B is based on certain presumptions or uh, pre-assumptions that are being made by people about what the application is. People say, well, yeah, that's not really sound money. It's like, oh, okay, so sound money is what you're trying to do. Well, okay, well, in that case, path A obviously is the right, perhaps even the only choice you could make. Um, but what you're arguing for is a very specific application of what you're trying to do. And every now and then, people come in and say, this platform can do everything. Um, and to me, that kind of statement, it can do everything without compromises, trade-offs, uh, or any negatives, just all positive on every axis, maximo maximizing every possible dimension of capability, jack of all trades, fantastic at everything, renaissance man of the blockchain space. Uh, it, it, when people say that, I can only arrive at two conclusions. One, they don't understand the fundamental engineering trade-offs and so think that they're getting both but they are actually sacrificing one or they do understand and they're lying um, which I've encountered both um, some people really don't understand the design trade-offs and other people simply are lying to pretend that their system can do everything Andreas what would you say are the two major trade-offs between Bitcoin and Ethereum well, the first trade-off, uh, I think the most fundamental trade-off is a trade-off between um, flexibility and security. So the Bitcoin scripting language is restricted in many ways to be very simple, um, to be Turing uh, incomplete on purpose, which is hard to achieve, to... Um, expose a very, very small attack surface uh, to be written in such a way that you can do a certain degree of static analysis to have very few side effects, to have very few unintended consequences. And as a result, it's extremely limited in the range of what it can express, but those things that it can express, it can express with very robust security and very predictable outcomes. And that makes it really good for sound money and really, really sucky for smart contracts. And Ethereum takes the exact opposite trade-off. Um, it's an expressive language, an expressive EVM, Turing complete, very flexible, can express a very broad range of capabilities. Um, but uh, it can create these incredibly complex systems where there are all kinds of unintended side effects and where in order to reach maturity, security, robustness, stability, you have to go through a lot more iterations um, and, and potentially suffer a lot more losses and disappointments along the way. And, and that's okay for the application that Ethereum is good for. Um, and so that's one, that's one of the fundamental ones. I think the other one has to do with the money the monetary system. Ethereum is, at least for now, designed to be inflationary um, and designed to create um, a fairly easy to use medium of exchange type currency that is, um, that is inflated so as to direct most of the uh, revenue to doers, developers who are developing products and services and, and earning fees and, uh, and charging for those things, rather than kind of an, an investor minor class or a saver that is using it as a store of value. I think those are the two fundamental differences. There, there are probably going to be big disagreements for that statement, but... Yeah, for, from surprised you didn't say governance. Oh yeah, okay, great, great. I mean, I would that that may be and ranking these things on the fly because I wasn't anticipating this question was probably uh, not a good choice. But yeah, um, I'm surprised I didn't say governance. Yes, governance. Governance is also a, a fundamental difference between um, Ethereum and Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin pretends to have none. So and how does uh, how does Ethereum's transition to proof of stake uh, change, or maybe does not change your answer with with regards to uh, Ethereum security? Do you do you align with proof of stake? Do you think it's a viable security mechanism? I think it's a viable security mechanism for the applications that Ethereum is trying to achieve. Um, I think it's not a viable and it's not equivalent to proof of work. And I think proof of work is a better fit for the types of applications that Bitcoin is trying to achieve. And I think part of the reason that Ethereum gets to do proof of stake is because it has as its big brother, friendly big brother, not looking over <laughs> your shoulder, it's friendly, you know, older protector, if you like, um, Bitcoin that uh, provides a, a source of stable, broadly available liquidity and access to markets that is so uncensorable and so difficult to interfere with that um, that, that gives Ethereum the ability to, to, to do other things more flexibly. Do you not think that Ethereum is able to generate those that liquidity and onboarding and on-ramps all by itself? Uh, those, yes, but... Uh, it can do so only in a much less adversarial environment. So if the environment gets very adversarial, then that liquidity and on ramps dry up the opportunities to do censorship attacks, the opportunities to build enough stake to attack the system. I think it's a, it's a lot harder uh, to attack a proof of work system because there is a minimum energy requirement to rewrite the past, even if you have 100% collusion by the miners. Uh, whereas in a proof of stake system, if you have 100% collusion by the stakers or coercion of the stakers, um, they can rewrite past history at zero cost. Um, that is not the case in proof of work. So qualitatively, I think they're different. And, you know, at the same time, proof of work is horribly expensive. Um, and not from an eco perspective, because I think that it naturally, it naturally drives towards renewable, low cost, remote, and difficult to distribute sources of energy. Uh, so its eco footprint could be fairly green, um, but it's a big footprint nevertheless. Of, of energy requirements. And um, I, as I've said many times before, I think it might be the case that in the end, we can only afford one proof of work system for the entire planet. But we need one, at least. We may not need to. We may be able to effectively sell energy-based immutability to other chains through checkpointing. So for the cost of a transaction, you could checkpoint your current state of your proof of stake system into a energy strong proof of work immutable chain and essentially get all of the benefits of irreversible immutability and the cost of the energy that's being built into that um, for the cost of a transaction, a transaction fee. And why build another one? We, it's too expensive. So yeah, we'll need one proof of work system and then everybody else gets to play with proof of stake. It's a great arrangement. It's a very interesting way to kind of frame the, the current system. It's actually interesting on a previous podcast, Mike Dunworth said something pretty similar about how other chains could potentially leverage Bitcoin. Um, something I do It's already want happening to kind of actually. There, there, there's already, sorry, there's already a number of chains that checkpoint into um, Bitcoin. And so that's do, have, that's... do you have any examples off the top of your head? Um, I can't remember if it's called very block or oh, yeah. because with very a V, I, th I think it, I'm not sure. I, I may be misspeaking, but it, I think it begins with a V. It's, it's a chain that does specifically that. Um, so Andreas, I wanted to turn it back because you mentioned this twice now, and I just want to clarify it. You said that Bitcoin and proof of work is great for what Bitcoin is being intended for or being designed for. And then Ethereum and or proof of stake and Ethereum is kind of being designed uh, in a different way for different use cases. Can you be a little bit more ex explicit about uh, what use cases you have in mind just so we can carry that through the conversation? So I think uh, primarily Bitcoin, its primary use case is 
uh, very decentralized, censorship-resistant, neutral, borderless um, money that cannot be taken down by even colluding states at a very large level without enormous effort and without some pockets of it remaining uh, even under pressure. Uh, it is it is either uh, a very sound reserve currency for the internet if it's not being attacked, or it's the guerrilla currency that is resisting the attack <laughs> if it is being attacked, and it's the only surviving guerrilla currency that survives in tiny pockets when it's being massively attacked. Um, I think it can do that. And by comparison, I think Ethereum is this really, really nice sandbox play playpen for developers to explore their wildest imaginations and build um, really complex um, and expressive and interesting systems, build modular systems by reusing components, uh, explore new innovations in in finance and financial services, in um, governance systems, in uh, content systems, and and do so at a very, very rapid pace. And so those two functions are fundamentally different. Uh, and they require different money, they require a different security mechanism. Yeah, that's actually a great lead into the next topic that I kind of wanted to bring up. So the year 2018 and 2019 were pretty pivotal in uh, the Ethereum narrative for how Ether is going to uh, accrue in value and in how it's going to protect the system because Ether price appreciation is uh, direct, uh, direct, directly correlated to the security and health of the overall network. Yeah. So uh, the, the price appreciation, at least the narrative in the Ethereum world, is that Ether becomes the collateral for all of these DeFi applications. And that mm -hmm. DeFi is this blanketed network uh, financial layer upon the globe that is um, hopefully moving ever and ever closer to being unstoppable code, unstoppable applications that use Ether as a collateral type. And so at the beginning of this podcast, you talked about how you are Bitcoin and Ethereum, but there is, uh, you know, a growing subset of, of people call them monetary maximalists that really think that only one money can really exist. And that money is going to be the most liquid, the most saleable, the most globally accessible asset. And so some people think that it can't be Bitcoin and Ethereum. It has to be either BTC or ETH. And so uh, do, does, do you... Do you, do you take that point, and then also do you see that uh, DeFi is this is, as a as a layer, a financial layer for um, for the Earth, and where's Bitcoin's role in that? Um, I I don't agree with that perspective, and I don't think the historical data we have on on money and currencies in general shows that. Um, Money does have to have some soundness and some characteristics on forgeability and money can be better money or less good money, but utility is a big part of it. And um, some money can be very good money because it has very good utility and other money can be very good money because it has very good soundness. Uh, and both can be good money uh, in different contexts. And if it is trivially easy to do an atomic swap between them, in a decentralized, uncensorable, and neutral way, then the, all of the types of pressures that would lead to a single dominant money um, get eroded by that trade-off between soundness and utility, which actually is a good reason to have too. Um, so I don't buy that. Just for emotional tribal affiliation and brand reasons, people have more than one money for non-rational, financially stupid reasons, people have more than one money. Um, but even for strictly rational reasons, I think there's more room in the world um, for some different types of money that are easily interchangeable. And, you know, it, it may be that Bitcoin and Ethereum are those or not. 
I don't know yet. The idea of uh, Ethereum being collateral uh, for all of the DeFi applications, et cetera, et cetera, is, is the same fundamental idea that I see for, for Bitcoin and um, just with different applications, which is this. Um, when somebody asks me how secure is Bitcoin or how secure is Ethereum, um, there is no unit for measuring security. I wish there was. I wish I could say it's two giga Schneiders or, you know, one kilo Assange or <laughs> seven Peta Snowdens, um, to use some names of people who have affected the security of our lives. Um, the best analogy I can use is to measure the amount of capital that is currently stored and has not yet been stolen in that system. So I can say that Bitcoin is, you know, $80 billion secure now. That, that means that it can store, use, and transmit those kinds of amounts in an economy of that size without being compromised. How do I know? Because it has not for very long, but long enough that I can say it wasn't a fluke. Um, and similarly, I can say the same thing for Ethereum to a certain size. So if you think of security being measured as the amount of money that the system has the capacity to keep secure and not have stolen uh, outright, not just stolen from in the system, but stolen out of the system, taken out of the system, collapsed, crashed, whatever, then that's a proxy to this idea of collateralization. So if you say, you know, Ethereum is X many billion dollars secure, that means that you can use it to run an economy of this size before it's hacked, that it can keep an economy of that size unhacked. Um, and so as the ability of the system to secure more economic activity and uh, more applications that create that economic activity increases, so should the price of the token in order to maintain that security, whether you're in proof of work or proof of stake. And so I buy that. I buy that and I see it in both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, in the case of Bitcoin, the application for me is um, an international framework for cross-border transmission of uncensorable neutral money and on-ramps into all of the other cryptocurrencies, the gateway to fiat and things like that. In the case of Ethereum, it's, it's with Ether, it's, it's things like DeFi and ICOs and crowdfunding. And who knows what next? I mean, I don't think those are the only um, applications. So the, there's a pretty common uh, criticism from generally the Ethereum crowd to the Bitcoin crowd that, that Bitcoin is good money, but a bad monetary system. Um, and so some people, um, I tend to believe this, think that uh, Bitcoin is kind of incomplete because in order for a Bitcoin to be integrated into a financial system, uh, we have to trust people in order to do that. Uh, because of the lack of expressibility of Bitcoin at the base layer, we need to trust, uh, you know, financial institutions in the same way that we trust the banks now. And so the thesis here is that uh, Bitcoin is kind of just this new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, and anyone who just didn't have early exposure to uh, Bitcoin price ap appreciation is really never going to be able to appreciate the benefits of this new uh, financial system. It's just going to take dollars in your dollar dollar banks, and then you're going to have Bitcoin in your Bitcoin crypto banks. Um, do you do you accept that thesis, or do you decline it? I would decline it, and I, I would decline it for a number of reasons. One, it underestimates the expressivity of Bitcoin script, uh, meaning that you can actually do some rather interesting smart contracts. The Lightning Network being a great example of that. The second is that in terms of expressivity, if that thesis is correct and you really need a form of um, money that's much more expressive, then the only, the only real function that Bitcoin needs to do, in, in addition to being robust and uncensorable, is to be able to do an atomic swap into Ether. And then you get all of the goodies of Ether plus the ability to maintain robust, uncensorable, cross-border, neutral transactions. Um, which on its own, I don't think e Ether can do. So 
I, I, I think that even if the only application that was left was to fund Ether contracts with a more robust infrastructure of money, um, then that would still be a good reason for Bitcoin to exist. But obviously, I think there's a lot more than that. So I think that we can actually deliver a, a, a fairly robust set of uh, fundamental services, what I call universal access to basic finance, um, on the basis of Bitcoin. Absolutely. Uh, I definitely agree with you on, on this point, Andreas, and definitely vehemently disagree with uh, the, the narrative that David kind of uh, articulated but don't want to get too stuck up on that. I do kind of want to talk about, um, you have really dug deep into Bitcoin as a technology as well as Ethereum as a technology, but you've also interacted with, you know, what could be said as the Bitcoin community a lot and the Ethereum community a lot. I'm curious to hear, like, if you were to like try to like separate both those communities and then, and then talk about, you know, where those communities get it right and where they get it wrong. Um, how would you illustrate that? You know, I think the the two communities have emerged from two very different um, starting points and came from different parts of um, our culture, I guess. In, in Bitcoin, there is a very strong cypherpunk ethos that goes back to the older cypherpunk community mixed with uh, kind of a more monetary Austrian libertarian don't tread on me attitude that is more of a modern American culture. And that shows in the really, really strong culture of independence, sovereignty, um, neutrality, censorship resistance, um, a fairly conservative approach to sudden change, uh, a healthy degree of suspicion of, hi, we're from the government, we're here to help, or um, why don't we play well with the regulators, I'm sure they mean well, and things like that. Um, and a fairly suspicious view of the legal frameworks of different countries and the risks of trying to comply, conform, and appease the least common denominator of cultures as diverse as, you know, Saudi Arabia, Madagascar, and Canada. Um, the bottom line is that that culture is perfectly suited for Bitcoin's primary application. Uh, I think the Ethereum culture has um, a much much bigger kind of appeal to the developer and tinkerer, maker, um, explorer culture of kind of the modern maker movement, which involves testing things out, having kind of a playful attitude towards technology, um, being curious and uh, exploring possibilities uh, not being afraid of making mistakes. And that brings with it a certain more progressive attitude about moving forward quickly and being more flexible. Uh, as a result, it creates a more diverse community uh, that attracts people from a much broader spectrum of the culture, I would say. Um, and it, it operates in a very different way. There's a lot less suspicion about ulterior motives. There's a lot more playfulness. And the downside of that, of course, is that there are quite a few kind of naive attitudes about how, how far we can take this and um, whether that we're going to find ourselves with a fight on our hands. Um, I think that we may see uh, a crackdown in the crypto ecosystem as a whole uh, from governments. We're already seeing it in some countries and they're not going to make, and I've said this at East Denver most recently, they're not going to make the kinds of uh, distinctions that we have. And in, in, in our, uh, within our crypto community, we see these clear distinctions between one blockchain and another, between one culture, one community and another. 
to the outside world, we're all just weirdos with some computers doing stuff that's illegal. And um, if they decide that one part of that community is doing things that are not just illegal, but dangerous to their security and way of life, they're not going to make distinctions in their crackdown, which means that a lot of the happy-go-lucky, flexible, uh, let's go play with code stuff is going to run straight into the gaping toothy maw of um, conservative justice system that does not understand nuance. So those are the two cultures. And I think we need both. You know, there's, there's a, a good and healthy degree of skepticism, cynicism, uh, paranoia, and security mindedness that comes from Bitcoin that actually allows us to have a very robust um, infrastructure and is fairly real about the world we live in and the kinds of power plays where people get killed over this shit. No, it's, it's not just games. And if we only had that culture, it would be miserable. So thank God we also have uh, the much more optimistic, happy-go-lucky community of Ethereum so that we don't all, rainbows. you know, yeah, because otherwise we'd all just lock ourselves in our um, shelter dungeons <laughs> <laughs> with ammo and beans. So you hang out with some Bitcoiners. <laughs> I think it's a lot more fun than that. Although there is a lot of meat. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you ask me to characterize the communities, I am going to make some broad and scathing generalizations that are going to be wrong for a lot of people, obviously. But there are certain themes that emerge from each community uh, in very broad strokes. And those are not specific people. Um, and the specific people may be on a much, much broader range, of course. Absolutely. All of this is a very, very broad generalization. But I, and you know, and I find myself at, at some, some days, even some times of the day, I find myself squarely in the paranoid, um, conservative, this is going to be a, a very tough fight. You know, we're, we're fighting for civilization uh, community. And then the next moment, I'm like, oh, look at this cool thing we can do with lightning or, <laughs> or smart contract. So I think that, that leads right into a question I, I wanted to bring up. So uh, a common theme on POV crypto is that, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoiners and Christian tend to think that this is going to be a hard fight, as you just said. And I'm of the camp that we're generally going to be uh, protected by a shield of just lack of understanding and confusion as to what we are actually building on Bitcoin and Ethereum. And by the time the regulators and governments figure it out, it'll be too late. How adversarial do you think the next 5, 10, 20 years, uh, how, how adversarial do you think governments and, and authorities are going to be uh, at, this, at this industry? They're, they're not going to be adversarial until they realize that it matters. Uh, and then they're going to be very adversarial. Right now, part of the reason we all get a pass is because they, they think this is all a joke. And... It's not currently threatening the, reverse, the reserve status of the dollar or whatever. It is threatening to some governments in some countries, and those governments and countries um, make very, very broad knee-jerk reactions. So in India, for example, they just banned it all, you know, and effectively. Um, they, they haven't yet passed the law that is the fully draconian can't own buy, sell, hold, or even talk about and promote any form of virtual currency that isn't a central bank digital currency created by the Royal Bank of India. Um, but they're one step away in a complete majority government that has no opposition. So like, it's, not, it's not a difficult step to take. And if you think the Indians won't pass laws without thinking much about the impact of those laws, pay more attention to what's happening in India right now, because... Um, it's the definition of a slippery slope 
from a secular democracy to a kind of knee-jerk authoritarianism and is playing out in real time. Um, now, I'm, I'm hoping that in other countries there's more deliberative attitude towards these things, but then again, that can change in a heartbeat. That can change because of one event. And if people get scared, like really scared about what's happening in this crypto space, um, you know, I think the, the Ethereum attitude that they don't understand what we're doing, therefore it's going to be fine, will run straight into a boomer prosecutor with an ax to grind and a re-election coming up, a super dramatic disaster or thing that had some tangential connection to something in crypto, and they will destroy hundreds of people's lives on a whim, and there will be nothing to stop them. So I, I'm not as optimistic uh, as that. I think that for now, things are pretty sensible and deliberative, and we're getting to play around and do things, at least those of us who live in, in countries that have a more flexible system and rule of law and things like that to a certain degree. But, um, you know, don't, don't underestimate what a scared boomer can do when they, when they have the ability to prosecute people. Andreas, I mean, I, I definitely see that as being something that could happen. I do have wishful thinking and I do count on confusion in order to be as a kind of like a buffer for these things to continue to proliferate. I'm kind of curious how you feel about like the current state of regulation, just because it seems as though at least, at least in the US, like KYC is pretty much completely blanketed any access point to crypto. Um, in the Bitcoin community, there is new heated debates around how to create a circular economy and things like that in order to preserve the anonymity features and cash-like values of Bitcoin. Can you talk about like where we are right now and are we in a dangerous place as we are with current regulations? Oh yeah, we're in, we're in a very dangerous place. I think it, it's important to realize that what the United States is doing in terms of regulation is has nothing to do with crypto. It has to do with a perspective uh, of a, a two-sided perspective. One side of this perspective is the idea, the fundamental idea that um, money has to be controlled and that every source and destination of every payment in every medium has to be controlled. And the only reason cash has escaped that is Kind of a historical anomaly. This vision started in the 1970s with the Bank Secrecy Act. It's progressed with the development of technology. Um, but the end goal of this is a, um, a system of total and complete end-to-end -end surveillance of money. Uh, they even use the term surveillance when they talk about regulation of financial institutions. Um, so first of all, that's the end goal. And it's, it's, it's not a hidden goal. It's, it's a very explicit goal. And if you ask people who are working with regulators, well, do you think that every payment everywhere in the world by any person to any person should be subject to KYC AML? They look at you funny because they don't understand the question. Um, they assume that there's a gotcha to the question. They're like, well, of course. I mean, how could you think otherwise? What kind of world do you want to live in? Are you crazy? You want people to just be able to pay each other with like no oversight? Uh, so to them, it, it's not only given, it's unthinkable any other way. The other way lays complete chaos. In fact, they, they assume that that's how it already is because most of the systems they interact with are like that. They, they, they think that the five or six billion people who operate outside of that system of surveillance are simply not important enough, I guess. Um, so on the one hand, you've got this assumption that that's the end goal, complete surveillance. And to put a name to it, um, the total surveillance of all financial transactions is by definition and by its name alone, totalitarian. So a system of, of complete control over finance is a totalitarian system and we should call it what it is, right?
it's fascist. Um, and it's terrifying. Maybe fascist is a right wing term. Uh, totalitarian fits better because then you can, it, it has nothing to do with left or right. It's about complete control by an authority over your life. And it's a very dangerous future. No matter whose hands you put that control into, um, bad things happen. So one is the vision. The other one, which is in the US at least taken for granted and uh, again, an, uh, an, un, an unquestioned and unexamined assumption is the concept of universal jurisdiction, which means that as long as it could in any way at any time affect any American or American interest or American corporation or American ideal anywhere in the world, then it is subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. It doesn't matter where you live, what legal system you're under, whether you have sovereignty, whether you don't, whether you're a country, whether you're a corporation, whether you're an individual, whether you have ties to the US or not, we will find you, hunt you down, extradite you and stick you in jail because you violated the law that wasn't your law. That concept has gone from being applied narrowly to drug to the drug war, narrowly to terrorism, to now being universally applied to everything and finances at the core of it, which means that if the U.S. believes KYC applies to everything, that means everywhere. It doesn't mean just in the U.S. It means everywhere on this planet, for everyone on this planet. And the only people who get away with it are those who have nukes. It's, it's basically as simple as that. Um, and so those two concepts together are going to create a problem for every open system of finance, cryptocurrency, blockchain in the future, because those open systems of finance are going to violate the two concepts of totalitarian surveillance and universal jurisdiction at some point and in some way. And when they do, the US is going to treat them as an exception and try to stop them. And when they discover they can't stop them as easily as they had before, they're going to escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate because they won't just give up this idea. This idea is an unassumed, unexamined assumption and framework that is the truth. Everything else is just criminal behavior by weirdo anarchists who are trying to destroy the pure American way of life and take away our apple pie. Um, and so it's naive, I think, to, to think that when, you, when what we're introducing is a system that fundamentally violates these assumptions by taking a position of open private finance for the entire world, that that's not going to come into conflict. So one of the uh, theories that uh, many people in the crypto space, specifically ca that came out of the, the sovereign individual, is that if crypto money becomes the new money for the world at large, and governments are then uh, you know, no longer have the ability to print money uh, as they have been, uh, then, then governments can't really fund all of these things that they would have otherwise uh, funded, like you know, military, you know, massive militaries, nukes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do, do, is this a future world that you think that you think about, and do you th do you see it coming? And after assuming that you know we get through this this massive, uh, you know, maybe twenty long year war between uh, governments and crypto, what when we come out on the other side, what does that future look like? Um, I, I think that has two answers to what you're looking at. Um, if you're looking at the average small country that's underfunded and it's having financial problems and currency control issues, you know, you're looking at Zimbabwe, Argentina, uh, you know, Cyprus or whatever, a medium sized country with a couple million people an underfunded military, its own underperforming currency, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, they will, they will lose the ability to extend power and influence. Um, and in, in many cases, they will have to accept the reality of crypto things, but, and, and they will have to do so because the alternative is to accept dominance by one of the superpowers in their currency. Um, and, and maybe they don't even have that choice in some cases. 
but when you look at it from the perspective of superpowers, it's a very different equation. You know, if we think back at what happened, for example, the Soviet Union in 1991-1990, they reached that point that we're talking about. They reached that point where they could no longer fund superpower-level activity. Uh, Well, yes, a a big chunk of the weapons rusted, um, but they were still very much able, within a very short period of time, to continue to exert power and to exert power on all of the satellite states that emerged from that and beyond. And ultimately, um, you know, 20 or 30,000 people with machetes is enough to exert power. You don't really need high tech. Um, And if you can't uh, pay those people to inflict power or extend power, uh, then you indoctrinate them to do it on their own based on some cultural objective or nationalist objective that they believe in. So um, peasants with pitchforks is more than enough to, to, um, to attack uh, any system. And it doesn't take high-tech or enormous amounts of money. So I'm not as confident that simply by changing the basis of soundness of money, um, we defund all of these activities. Yes, that can happen on a small basis, but nobody's defunding the U.S. government to the point where they can't uh, any longer cause havoc around the world. Um, So if, if that's what we're hoping for kind of the revolution of affairs in international finance or the end of empire, that's going to be a very, very ugly kind of confrontation. I'm, I'm hoping for a much more gradual, uh, fading into irrelevance um, um, system where uh, the, the, the problems arise from other, other places, right? And, Places like the United States have have much bigger problems than Bitcoin, and as long as that's the case, we're not facing much conflict. Andreas, we're running up against the clock here, but I think I have one more question. Is there a possibility that Bitcoin or crypto's ethos in general could be viewed in America as actually having American qualities? Is that something that's possible? And is that something that appeals to people outside of the U.S.? Um, it, it depends how you define American qualities. As, as someone who emigrated to the United States, drawn by the, the promises of the Enlightenment age, um, individual sovereignty and constitution that the United States pretends to be or tries to be. Um, I, I think crypto already has um, very close ties to American values and American culture simply because American values and American culture are a set of ideas and those ideas are about expression, freedom, self-determination, freedom of association, um, openness, and a fairly progressive culture. Um, as long as America is those things, and as long as, which is questionable, and uh, as long as crypto continues to do those things, yes, you could associate them. And I, I think those ideas in themselves are always and universally appealing uh, to most cultures if they understand what they, what they are and how they apply. Um, I think the bigger, the bigger danger is that people do not see those as American values and they see cryptos associated with kind of regressive conservative imperial um, values that the US is increasingly demonstrating instead of acting in its founding values. But, but that's a much broader political ideology discussion. Uh, I think it's, it's dangerous to try to um, pigeonhole crypto into um, a unified culture where it appeals only to a certain subset of the political spectrum. I've seen that happen a lot in Bitcoin. And I think that's dangerous because the idea of open, accessible, borderless, neutral, censorship-resistant money should be part of the universal ideals of the Enlightenment age, of 
of classical liberalism. And um, if we associate crypto too much with a kind of um, knee-jerk regressive conservatism that is emerging in some parts of, of this culture, uh, that only damages crypto. So I would like to hope that we can make um, crypto more welcoming to people from all different circumstances, different contexts, different cultures, different languages, different geographies, etc. Um, and reduce the number of litmus tests and purity tests and ideological tests that you have to pass in order to be considered a real crypto person. Um, whether that's a, you know, a, a real Bitcoiner versus um, a not so real Bitcoiner or whatever those, cri those criteria and litmus tests are. Because I, I can tell you, I fail several of them all the time and get called out by a whole bunch of the community for failing their ideological purity tests. Um, and I, I think that's the wrong way to go. Andreas, we want to thank you for coming on to POV and giving us your, your POV. You, like we said at the beginning, you were, we had uh, our sights on you as a guest since the beginning. So just wanted to th thank you for your time and, and sharing your insights. And it's always, it's always valuable listening to, to what you have to say. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. This has been a, a, a total blast. I think uh, in, in the, in the genre of Bitcoin versus Ethereum, I think I may have uh, actually managed to offend everyone <laughs> e equally. Um, and we'll see. We'll see when this when this show posts. We'll see what kind of uh, backlash I I, I get. But uh, you know, I'm just doing me. Nevertheless, it is a symptom of success. So uh, thank <laughs> you for your contributions to the to the overall ecosystem in both. Oh, camps. thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, CK. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andreas, I don't think anyone here doesn't already follow you, but if they don't and they want to find out more about you, where can they find that? Um, so my uh, username from back in my early computer days is uh, A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P. That's the first letter of my first name and the seven letters of my last name. That's how you make a Unix username back in the uh, 80s. So aantonop, um, aantonop.com, aantonop on Twitter, aantonop on YouTube. Um, and the vast majority of my work is free, open source, available under Creative Commons licenses. Um, specifically, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a chance to mention that uh, this past month, we open sourced um, Mastering Ethereum under a fully open license. It was under a non-commercial, non-derivative license. Uh, as of January, it's under a attribution share alike Creative Commons license, as is Mastering Bitcoin. Uh, a whole uh, group of volunteers have now descended upon it and are translating it into, I believe, 12 languages already. And um, hopefully that will help us get this um, college-level textbook, computer science book out to train the next 10,000 developers in Ethereum. Uh, and that's been my goal from the very beginning. I'm very happy to announce that. And if you're interested in not just reading the book, but learning it deeply, one of the best things you can do is if you speak another language, is go in and uh, try to translate it. And you'll learn more about the book that way than any other way. And give a gift to your fellow language speakers. I can attest uh, as a non-dev, I've got that book. Uh uh, on my bedside table and uh, it's as a non-dev it's hard but it's definitely something that, that teaches me the resources that I needed to know to really understand Ethereum at a, at a deep Yes level. and it's also strongly recommended as a treatment for insomnia so if you have it on your bedside table you're having difficulty sleeping chapter three <laughs> public key cryptography <laughs> <laughs> All right and Andreas thank you for coming on the podcast really appreciate your time Thank you so much you guys can follow me both on Twitter and on Bankless at Trustless State. Christian? You guys can follow me at on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. Make sure to rate and review the show. We are so close to 100 five-star reviews. Please help us get there. 
Andreas, if you like Andreas, help us get there. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for giving me a chance to, to plug the new license on the book. Um, Absolutely. If you can't fit that, I understand if you cut it, no problem. And it's been a pleasure. Okay. Uh, keep doing what you do, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks Talk soon. Do you?